If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Rent Roll Radio listeners, as always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. I am back with a guest. Uh, he is our first three-peat guest. This is the third time he's been on our show. He is one of our favorite thought leaders and has been since we got into the space. So I was excited uh, when his marketing team had mentioned that he would grace us with his presence again. Although I will say we, law, we lob softballs to our favorite thought leaders on their first and second tour. But round three, you're getting the hard questions today, Neil. Uh, the I'm, mad scientist I got my of the mad awesome. scientist of multifamily himself, Neil Bawa. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back on, Sterling. It's been fun the first two times and the third time. I'm I'm ready. Don't give me any softballs this time. So for our listeners that started later in the show and are not as familiar with who you are, can you give us a brief rundown of your history and your past and, and, and kind of what you're doing today? Sure. I'm a computer science graduate um, and a data scientist by profession. Had a successful tech career for 15 years. Ran a company, sold a, that company. And in, uh, I invested in real estate for a decade with my own money, no investors, learned a bunch of things, screwed up a bunch of things, and then started to use data science to publish data about where to invest in real estate. Currently, about 12,000 people on Udemy.com are taking my real estate data science course, and I have about 1,000 very nerdy investors, a lot of them from Silicon Valley, that have invested with me, and I've been able to build uh, build that into a billion dollar database of thirty properties in ten states. Awesome, awesome! And uh, for our listeners, you know, I first met Neil in uh, January of 2020. A lot, wow! The world's changed six times since then. But I saw him on stage at Joe Fairless's event, and he uh, basically broke down his data science approach towards market selection and neighborhood selection within markets. And to this day, I mean, somebody asked me a week ago, how do I know what a good market to invest is? And I forwarded him Neil's, I forwarded him Neil's workbook that he sent me in January of 2020, because that's still the kind of best way to break down those, those markets that I find. And whenever somebody sends me a deal that I've never invested in that market before, you know, if it's not one of our core markets, uh, the first thing I do is I run that city through your gauntlet. So love what you built yeah. that. Yeah, you know, a lot of syndicators obviously are very evolved in the way that they process this data, and many have their own tools and techniques and methodologies that may even be better. My goal was to give this to any investor, and that that investor can then basically compare two cities in the U.S. that they've never even heard of, right? So, you know, Lehigh Acres in Florida, I want to compare that with Washington, Utah, right? Because somebody, I walked into uh, I walked into an evening cocktail event and somebody said, Lehigh Acres is great. And somebody else said, no, Washington, Utah is better. Well, how do you compare these two places for real estate profits, right? And for real estate risk. And so the, the Location Magic Toolkit was designed to create a 10-minute long process where you can take 10 minutes to work on one city and 10 minutes on the other. And it will be very, very clear to you at the end of that time, which of those two cities is better. By the way, those are both great cities to invest in. They're very tiny. But um, I, I picked those two as, as examples because it's unlikely that anyone's ever heard of Lehigh Acres, Florida or Washington, Utah. 
So it seems like every time we're talking, the sky is falling, right? The first time you were on, we had just kicked off COVID. The second time you were on, we were right about to hike interest rates or we had just started. And so now we're sitting in the mess, which is the COVID and the interest rates and everything. And and so what are we looking at today? What's your feel for the market? I, I, I know we I saw you a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake City and you were on the you were on the, the sky is falling train. Are we still there? How do we feel? Um the sky is falling slowly. The answer is that and I'll I'll slice and dice it up into single family, multifamily, and commercial real estate. Uh, single family is doing really well. Um, you know, nationwide prices are only down five percent when adjusted for seasonality, which is an amazing number. I I thought I was on the on the camp of people that thought that by now single family prices nationwide would reduce by ten percent. There are some bubbly markets like Austin, Boise, and Phoenix that have gone down ten percent. San Francisco Bay Area down gone down twelve. But overall, the single family market is standing up well, and that's because. 99% of loans are 30-year fixed, so people are only selling when they absolutely need to sell. And that's created so little inventory in the marketplace that that you know prices have gone down in a very orderly fashion. So the single-family market is in a correction and a gentle one, a slow, gradual process. The multifamily market is in a major correction, so a significant major correction. Some of the same things apply uh, very few people are selling. The, the, only the people that absolutely need to sell are selling. So there's very little inventory in the market, which means that cap rates, which is the mechanism by which we figure out you know, what a property is worth, are all over the place. For example, a very recent CBRE report shows class A value-add cap rates in Phoenix at 5.75. I don't believe that number at all. I think that that number is, I'm sure that some property was sold for that uh, amount. It's just the the number of properties being sold in even major metros like Phoenix is so low. It's so choppy that the rates, you know, and cap rates are everywhere. Uh, it is very clear, though, that cap rates have now risen by between 125 and 150 basis points in most metros for 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 properties. Um, smaller metros, maybe 100 basis point because they 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 weren't that low, right? So remember what happens with cap rates when cap rates go up, prices go down. So cap rates were really, really low in many metros. They were in the threes, and those metros are the ones where they bounced the most, maybe 150 basis points. So they're up, which means the value of those properties is down. For those of you that don't know, um, 150 basis point jump is a 26% reduction in price. So we are seeing that in some metros for some properties, there just isn't a baseline. So uh, let's call it the sky is falling in certain metros in the US, and it's falling really, really slowly. Now, other metros are more in the uh, 75 to 100 basis point difference, which could be half of that 26% number. So you're looking at a 13% price reduction. But I'm not seeing any properties in the US that are not down by at least 12 or 13% from their highs, the highs being uh, the last quarter of 2021, the first quarter of 2022, those two quarters were basically the, the peak of the market. And so we're seeing the market recede from that. There is, I, to my knowledge, no metro in the United States that has held its prices for multifamily from that peak to now. Every single market has reduced, has gone down. And the biggest reason for reduction is is uh, variable debt. Uh, you know, the, the multifamily market has been so expensive in the last five years that the massive majority of debt that was uh, of properties that were purchased, especially for the syndication mechanism, uh, were variable debt properties. That's what worked. That's what people were using. Nobody was using fixed debt. Nobody was using HUD. And so all of those properties are now in trouble because their value has gone down and a significant portion of them need to be refinanced. Uh, but that 
that refinance deadline is not up yet, which is why we're seeing the sky fall slowly. And the third portion, which you know we'll discuss if you want to go there, is the sky is really falling and falling completely for every other commercial real estate asset class except for apartments. So there's a very significant level of distress there. I'll bite. I don't know how right. I couldn't bite. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> All right. So yeah, so th th that third bucket is everything from self-storage to hotels to retail to office. And of those segments, the one that is in absolute slaughter mode is the office market. Um, you know, because of work from home becoming sort of a thing where companies are, you know, saying, hey, you got to come back in the office. I'll give you, a, you know, one day off or two days off. Right. So people are coming back to the office. But it's, so it looks like about 20 percent of the companies just decided to stay remote. Eighty percent of the companies said come back to the office. But even the vast majority of those companies, especially the large companies, said we'll give you one day or two days a week. Now, you might think, well, how does that reduce office requirements? The answer is almost every company that I know of is moving to sharing desks. So as mm -hmm. desks are being shared, some people are not coming in on Monday and others are not coming in on Tuesday and Wednesday. So yeah, office yeah, space yeah. requirements have decreased extremely radically, um, leading metros like San Francisco to basically look like ghost towns. Um, and so office revenue is down 30 to 40% in major markets like you know San Francisco, New York. A lot of markets are extremely, extremely affected and no one wants to lend on office. So when your your property comes up for renewal or when you want to send it, sell it, finding debt is astonishingly difficult for office at this point in time. Now, retail is in a better position. There's really nothing wrong that I can point to as far as the retail market is concerned because the retail market was not overly bubbly. They didn't overbuild. You know, there really hasn't been a lot of retail construction well, you, in the last five you know years. What I you know what I think? You know what I think has kept retail in check is the the long and slow fear of the internet, right? Like Office kind of slapped us on the back of the head overnight with COVID, right? We we've been seeing shit go online for about twenty years now. Like like the idea that Toys R Us was going to go out of business, yeah, because you could order them on Amazon. Like we've been incubating that in our heads since two thousand seven. Like it wasn't a, and I think the prices stayed low in that fear. Yes. And, and and I think that fear is what has saved retail um, yeah. in that retail has not had an apocalypse. It's not have a, had a full depocal. It's been sort of a gradual decline, you know, low amount of, uh, you know, construction, which keeps, you know, things in a reasonable price range. So I think retail was actually in a good place, unfortunately. Um, and, and I would have said six months ago, retail was still in a good place. Today, though, you have to point out to the fact that 40 plus percent of all retail loans are offered by small to mid-sized banks. And if you've if you haven't been sleeping under a rock for the last two months, you know that we had this bank called Silicon Valley go bad. And after that, mid-sized banks lost massive amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars to the big banks, you know, to the Charles Schwab's and to the to the Chase and to the Bank of America's. Because People right. are afraid of the smaller ones going out. They're they're afraid of the smaller ones going out. They're afraid of a bank run on banks like First Republic. First Republic had a very wishiest bank run, which took their stock from $110 to $13 yesterday. So 85% reduction in stock value. I think they've lost 30 or 40% of their deposits, even though the entire banking system put $30 billion of their money into FRB to prevent it from going under and prevent contagion, which was, by the way, was a very smart move. The contagion was avoided. But FRB is simply a much smaller bank today than it was 45 days ago. Well, this is true of thousands of smaller banks 
where a lot of people basically are pulling their money out. And that money is going to take many, many years to return. Well, these banks were the primary sponsors of commercial real estate, with the exception of multifamily, and I'll explain why in just a minute. So if 40% of office funding was coming from small to mid-sized banks, if 40% of retail was coming from there, storage, not so bad. I think self-storage is, is in a better place. Industrial, almost 40% of that funding. And now you have these banks that are looking at every asset because they've been asked by the Fed after Silicon Valley banks collapse to basically look at their assets and do mark to market, which essentially means if your asset has lost value, you need to go into your books and mark down its value. Well, now that's a double bammy. On the one side, you're marking down your assets. On the other side, money is getting pulled out of your bank as depositors are fleeing to big banks. So now you have a double bammy. And so your ability to, to, to create new loans for retail, for office is is down, not down to zero, but I think that I, I think I would speculate that 60, 70 percent of all lending available to those asset classes has vanished. Um, multifamily is lucky in that the government has a mandate to provide loans to multifamily, and that mandate is fulfilled by two entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those are very large entities. They have hundreds of billions in loans. In fact, they have more money than they know what to do with because until 2022, Fannie and Freddie were running out of money. This year, they, I, I, I don't think that they're going to they're gonna even spend half of what they're supposed to spend each year because there's so little volume in the multifamily space. So they're, they're doing fine. There's plenty of money available. They're, they're happy to lend to anyone. So the multifamily market is liquid because of this mandate. Unfortunately, there are no mandates to provide lending for any other kind of commercial real estate space. Only, only multifamily and single family have mandates. Also, because of this mandate, multifamily has never hit 20%. So we've never had an instance where more than 20% of multifamilies were financed by small to mid-sized banks. The current number is 19%. So I'm sure some of that 19% is affected. Let's say half of it's gone. Well, you're still good because you still have 90% of the financing that you used to have, maybe 80% because CMBS is gone too. So there's there's lending and liquidity challenges in the multifamily industry, but there's lending debacles in the rest of the CRE industry in the coming 12 months. What about self-storage and industrial? So both of those asset classes are doing well. So as an asset class, I think both are in a good place. Uh, Self-storage has to be a little more careful because there's a lot of supply coming on. Industrial actually has more supply coming in than self-storage, but the demand for industrial is so robust that that supply may be absorbed, maybe maybe partially, maybe fully, but I think that the absorption rate for industrial right now is pretty high. Uh, some of it is because companies are reshoring some of their activities from China and other places to the US, not large amounts, some. But think about it. China has a trillion square feet of you know, industrial real estate. If you take 2% of that back, I mean, you're looking at an astonishing amount of space in the United States, right? So I think maybe 1% or 2% of Chinese manufacturing is going to return to the US. Well, the primary you know, asset class that benefits from that is industrial. So there's still uh, some uh, tailwinds for industrial. Self-storage has a lot of supply coming in, so it could get hit. So it, it's it's sort of a wait and watch situation. Uh, a lot of self storages are fairly small projects, so I think that the the the, the banks might still be uh, fairly uh, liquid on those. We, it's just a wait and watch, Sterling. I I don't really know how these two asset classes would do. If I had to say one will do better than the other, I'd say industrial would do better than self storage. So 
now for the hard questions. Real quick, and, I, and shame on me for not knowing this as long as I've known you. Your, your corporate structure, are you a fund or are you you're actively, you're managing, operating, buying, acquiring too? Or do you I, I'm, a, I'm you? a hands-on, in-the-trenches syndicator and developer. Okay. That's, a, that's other, other people put money sure. into my pro- projects. Other people put money right, into my right. I just okay. I just want to be clear. Um, so, so then my next question is: you know, we talk about everything that's happened over the last thirty-six months in the multifamily space. Um, so, you, you know, Neil Bawa, over the last thirty-six months, have been very active in the multifamily space. So, are you seeing? Are you are you feeling these pains that you're describing? Other people, did you make some of these decisions? Did you make other? more conservative decisions going into the last 36 months that you're insulated from these risks? And if you didn't, what are you doing to pivot now? I was lucky. Um, I can't say that, you know, uh, that my the decisions that I made in the last 24 months did not have an element of luck. I have only purchased a single property that I didn't already own in the last 24 months. Uh, actually, now two, because I, I, I did purchase one very recently, but obviously it's at a much lower price. So I won't count that one. But when we're talking about these peaky, expensive, three-cap type of properties in that 2021-2022 timeframe, I purchased one. I was very lucky. I purchased it at five-cap actual in a true tertiary market called Killeen. Uh, so the number of properties that I purchased in bubbly metros during this, the the rush was zero. Now, one could say this is because of my data. This one could say this is because I, you know, simply know what was going to happen. I didn't know any of those things. I felt concerned, but luckily I had new construction projects running in the hundreds of millions during that time, and they kept me busy. They, you know, used up all of my equity, and then basically I ran out of equity to buy um, apartment buildings. So I'm very lucky, and because I've been very lucky, because I only have a single property today that's bleeding, um, you know, and, and its bleed is is small enough for me not to do a cash call. Because of that, I have created a rescue fund. So a rescue fund, also called a PREF fund or rescue capital uh, or top-off equity, basically is designed to help those syndicators that may have overpaid, but hopefully they didn't do a three-cap overpay. Hopefully they they still bought something in the four-cap range. They're now bleeding. The, the property is bleeding cash, but otherwise the property is doing well. So their business plan is working, but they're losing money because of cash flow issues. Well, those kinds of properties which exist, I can vouch for that because I've, I've received a number of them uh, as incoming applications from syndicators. Um, those properties we can uh, top off in two different ways and, uh, and prevent them from going back to the bank. So luckily you ran out of money before things got really out of control. I think I was distracted. Um, I, <laughs> I suppose we could have raised more money. I, I, I think it's, it's more honest to say I was busy. That's great news. So what is your, I mean, we know you have the, the the rescue fund. What else is on your agenda for the next, you know, 12 months? Um, Oddly enough, it's new construction. And uh, you might say, what? That's, this, is, this seems to be the worst time to do new construction. You know, the interest rates are really high. Loan to values are really low. And I'm like, yes, that's why I like it. Because today I'm able to do something that I was not able to do in uh, 12 months or 18 months ago. 18 months ago, I had to buy land at outrageous prices. 18 months ago, I had to close on that land in 120 days, or in some cases, I had to go hard on day one. Well, now all of that has changed. So not only can I put land in contract for nine to 12 months without basically putting down a penny, 
Um, I also have the ability to negotiate on the price of that land. And basically, you know, the price of land has gone down pretty substantially. And that's hugely important in development because the you don't even know if you can build on the land when you buy it a lot. Exactly. So so we were taking that risk 12 or 24 months ago. We do have one property in Maynard that we don't think we can build on. So we would, would probably end up selling it. Luckily, it's gone up in value. So hopefully hopefully we break even. We're not going to make money. It's just uh, you know a year worth of wasted labor uh, on, on those properties. So so yeah, there's there's a significant risk. Today, I don't have to take that risk at all. In fact, in fact, there's so much... I wouldn't say distress, but there's so much of a sense of urgency amongst you know people who do land development that there are people where I'm telling them, you know what, I won't pay you a penny. I know your land's worth $3 million. You invest into my development project and give me that $3 million as equity. So I'll count it as your LP investment in my project. And that way... Yeah. That way, you don't have to sell it for you know a million and a half because right now the market's illiquid. You keep the three million dollar value, and then when five years later I sell my property, I've doubled your money like any other LP. Now you've made six million dollars, but today you're going to make. And, we, and, we, and you de- would would that defer the taxable event for them as well? And most likely, yes, because the, the 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 there is no actual sale, there is no transfer of money. They are simply vouching that yeah. land into my into my project. So their taxable event would be when the property is actually sold, right? So bec- right. and and to do that, I think I have to give them like a 0.1% GP share or something like that to for them to say, you know, we're general partners in this property and we're making something from prominent. So things like that. I mean, those kinds of opportunities are pretty awesome. And I had zero chance of making that happen 12 to 18 months ago. So the the other thing that I'm doing is I'm betting that interest rates will go down a year from now. So I'm making that bet and I'm basically getting 12, maybe even more than 12 months worth of extensions on my land. So I don't even really have to buy the land for a long time. And even if I buy it and rates haven't reduced yet, I hold because land is only... 10, 15% of the equity requirements. So I basically raise 15% of the equity, buy the land, hold, wait for rates to come down and don't actually get the debt until rates come down. So I'm trying to ride the downward wave of the interest rates, which I think will happen in the second half of this year, first half of next year. And the goal would be to actually raise most of the equity and get the debt in the second half of next year. So this is a great time to line up new construction because all of the factors are in your favor you just have to be prepared to walk away from deals where you have to close on the land quickly. So you are you're you're going all development, and your opinion is that just to to recap, housing market will continue to stay steady sl- slowly going through this. Multifamily about to fall off of a cliff, but then start to come back uh, fairly quickly. First quarter of next. Fairly quickly. Uh, no, no, I and wouldn't then, say first quarter of next year. I, I'd say third quarter of next year. So I think that from today, the price of multifamily falls um, all the way to the first quarter of next year, maybe stabilizes in second quarter, and you will start to see an uptick in that price because by by third quarter of next year is when the rate cuts from the Fed are substantial enough for there to be significant improvements in the lending situation, significant improvements in LTV, um, and that should make a almost immediate impact on prices because multifamily demand has been extraordinary because of the fact that there's all these office moguls that used to own amazing properties and towers that were four or $500 million. 
and they don't want to put a single penny into office at this point. Their only other option, really, realistically speaking, from a perspective of size, is multifamily. They can't go out and do $4 million storage, self-storage projects when they're buying $500 million office towers. So they, that capital is looking to deploy in multifamily. From what I can see, it's not actually put any money in. It's just sitting on the light sidelines. It's patient. But the moment the numbers, the math works out, they will jump in. And, and the math is now beginning to work in, uh, jump in. I was pencils down on value-add multifamily until April 1st. And so on April 1st, we started underwriting and we made our first offer in Tallahassee yesterday. Awesome. So I'm I'm back on the value add bandwagon. I I was just gone for a while. <laughs> Got it. What do you What would you and what advice do you have for somebody who's just getting started in this space? What advice would you give to to a, a Sterling Chapman in June of of twenty or January of twenty twenty who's at his first multifamily conference, overwhelmed, doesn't know where to start? You're lucky and you don't know it. You, today you're at a point where properties are fifteen to twenty five percent cheaper than eighteen months ago. Today, you're at a point where debt is going to get cheaper over the next 12 months. We, No one in our industry believes that debt is going to become more expensive the next 12 months. I'd say if you polled 100 responsible syndicators, 95 of them would say debt is going to get cheaper 12 months from now. So you're in, an, in a terrific position. You're, you're starting at a time of distress. That is absolutely the best time to start a business. Go read any business book whether it's Warren Buffett's book or Bill Gates' book, all of them will point out to you that distress is what creates great businesses. Distress is what creates tailwinds and opportunity. There is distress in today's marketplace. You have two problems, and both of them are solvable. The first problem is equity. Investors that invested 18 or 24 months ago are now seeing cash calls. They are seeing no return on their equity. They are seeing their pref you know, being... Uh, postponed, their cash flow is zero. So they're hearing all this bad news about their, their properties from lots of different sources. And so at this point, they are not inclined to invest, which is a huge mistake. I mean, if you were willing to invest in a three cap property 24 months ago, today that property is four and a half or five cap, and you're not willing to invest. This is about education. This is about telling investors, you're doing the same thing again that you did in 2009. You didn't buy anything in 2009. Yeah simply because everything was going down in value. And then you you promised yourself that you would never make that mistake again. You would be the Warren Buffett person. And today you're making the same exact mistake. It it, it is it's so hilarious how fundamentally I mean kindergarten level basic the investing principles of like buy low, sell high, buy, you know what I mean? Don't sell it when it's going down and everybody's freaking out. Like, it's just so 101. Like, I knew that in the ninth grade, yet every ounce of our, our like, human condition just fights it. I mean, just, dude, I did the same thing. I bought a bunch of Bitcoin and when it was sky high, and then it just shot down to absolute nothing, and I sold it. Three months later, it tripled. You know what I mean? It's just human nature to do it. It is, and, and we make that same mistake all the time. I think investing that most investors are actually speculators. So the vast majority of investors mm -hmm. are speculators. And it is our job, you know, the new Sterling Chapman who's going to his first conference, his primary job is to write a wonderful presentation that explains to people why every single indicator today is better than it was 24 months ago, including debt, by the way, because the, the, there's a very, very, very high chance that debt goes down. Even the Federal Reserve, which has been much more conservative than Wall Street, look at their dot plot. It clearly shows 
that they're going to be reducing the interest rates, right? Now, 12 months ago when you were investing or 24 months ago when you were investing, there was all this talk of the Federal Reserve saying, hey, we might have to raise interest rates. But you ignored that, right? And obviously it didn't work out for you. The Fed has been very consistent once you know they said transitional, once they got off of that bandwagon, which is about 17 or 18 months ago. Since then, they've been very consistently saying, we need to do a lot to contain inflation. They're, they're saying inflation's very high. We need to do a lot. And then, by the way, they, they're still not done. They may still raise again in May. Might be one last raise there. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. The point is, the Fed's been consistent. Wall Street is the one that has basically underestimated what the Fed will do. And the Fed's really gotten to where they thought they were going to get about six months ago. Um, so I think that we are on a path that's very clear. The Fed knows what they're doing. Uh, they were late to this market. Shame on them. But now they're they're working hard to correct their big mistake. And I think that as a result, this is actually a great time to be getting into an asset class. I want to point this out to you. I do not believe that the problems of mid-sized to, to you know, small to mid-sized banks will correct over the next year. I think it takes three to four years for them to correct. Well, if it takes three to four years, there's only one asset class that has mandatory liability. Right. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, two huge institutions with tens of billions of dollars to spend each year. It's multifamily. The, the other asset classes don't have this. I'm not saying all of them will do poorly simply because they don't have any lending, but it's going to be very hard for them. And I think lending, uh, you know, multifamily is going to become very liquid as soon as rates start to drop because of something known as spreads. Banks. So when we look at the interest rate that we pay on a multifamily, it actually has two components. The first component is the Fed funds rate. That's the piece that the Fed is raising. It's expressed in the industry as LIBOR or SOFR. These are terms, but essentially what it means is the banks borrow money from the Fed at a certain rate. Right now it's at 5%. And then they basically lend that money out at 5%. The second piece is called the spread. The spread is an indication of the bank's risk. If the bank thinks that loans are riskier, they make the spread bigger. If the bank thinks a loan is less risky, then the spread falls to a pretty small number, like 1%. Today's spreads are ridiculously elevated. You can get bridge debt. There is no shortage of bridge debt. There is no shortage of variable debt, but the, the cost is very high because the spreads are absolutely astonishing. On top of that 5%, people are putting in 3%, 4%, 5%, 6% even to give you bridge debt. But here's what happens. The moment the Fed stops, the spread portion collapses, not the Fed portion. The Fed portion is still the same. The Fed's just stopped raising. So that first portion is the same, but the second portion is just fear because the banks don't know where the Fed stops. That's going to collapse. Now, the first time the Fed cuts rates, which I think will happen in July or maybe, well, no, maybe July is too soon, September. So September this year, the Fed cuts rates and they're, they're going to cut by a small amount, like just a quarter point, right? So you get that quarter point benefit but then on the spread side, you might get another one point. Well, one and a quarter point is a huge, huge change in your underwriting. It's a massive change in your underwriting. And all of a sudden, you need less equity to buy the same property. So here's the rule. Get a property in contract now and don't close it until October. Don't lock in your interest rates until October. Drag it out as much as you can. I don't think that the, the seller is going to like that. But sellers have less power today than they did 18 months ago. Buyers have more power. Right. So bottom line is, I think this is a great time to put properties in contract and not close them. What is your what is your recommendation on a tactic to do that 
without pissing off the brokers and the sellers and getting a bad rep as a retrader or somebody who doesn't close on time and all that? Like, how do you tactfully do that? Pay them more money. Typically, to extend the property, you what you do is you increase your deposit. Well, when you increase your deposit, you're not actually paying more for the property itself. And while I'm generally not in favor of paying more money just to get 30 more days to close, if there was ever good use of money, this is it. You can go back and say, hey, if I take three more months, I'll pay you $100,000 more for your property. Now, all of a sudden, they're happy about that because now they're getting something for it. They're not just getting more deposit. Deposit simply means surety of close. But $100,000 is $100,000 of profit that they're generating. Well, I do the math. When I look at a 1.5% change in interest rate on a $20 million property, or let's say a $25 million property, the math is hugely in your favor. I would love to give that $100,000 up because not only is it going to make your loan much cheaper, it's going to make your rate cap much cheaper. Rate caps right now are outrageously expensive. $35,000 oh, rate yeah. caps are between half a million and a million dollars. And yeah. the moment, the moment the Fed stops, the moment the Fed cuts the rates once, those rate caps are going to collapse, right? And so that hundred grand that you're giving up, you're going to make that back with just the drop in the rate cap, let alone your mortgage. So the answer is, this is a great time to pay a bit more. And then all of a sudden, the seller is not as grumpy. Yeah, for sure. Great advice. Great advice. Any other tips and tricks going into this, um, this I think potential market opportunity? On the acquisition yeah, the, side? Um, I mean, look at look at cap rate reports. I think normally what happens is cap rates in the US were so freaking stable that I, I sort of got fed up of looking at cap rate reports. They were telling me what I already knew. Everything is really expensive. Class A is expensive, class B is expensive, C is expensive, D is expensive. You know, a property that should just be torn down is expensive. What am I getting out of cap rate reports? Today, though, actually, the cap rate reports are showing some very interesting data. There's markets, believe it or not, there's markets where cap rates haven't moved at all. Jacksonville hasn't moved at all in the last 12 months. And where would you pull these cap rate reports? CBRE. CBRE has a cap rate report that's pretty recent. So you might want to go to the CBRE website and sign up for their free account. And they, they you should be able to get the CBRE national cap rate report. And it's got all kinds of asset classes. So just scroll down to multifamily if you're interested in that and other asset classes are in their office, all kinds of asset classes. And you'll immediately see that there's a huge metro to metro difference, which didn't mm -hmm. exist 12 months ago. So, you know, right now, Phoenix, Atlanta are great places to invest in because there's more distress. There's more flexibility with buyers, uh, with, with uh, you know, sellers at, in, in those metros. Uh, Florida is a terrible place to invest in right now because the cap rates haven't moved, which means that they will move in the future. That market is simply sure. so buoyant at this point that it hasn't uh, reacted normally to um, to cap rate declines. How do you feel about Texas? Um, it's Texas is challenged. You know, I I am a big investor in Texas. Uh, half of my portfolio is in Texas, so. I, I hate saying this, but Texas is challenged right now because of a lot of things that they're doing. You know, it's Insurance. a state where, I mean, they 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 don't charge any sales tax. So they don't charge any state tax, and they're they're simply running out of infrastructure. Property. And so they're they're basically loading on the property taxes. The taxes are going crazy. Insurance is also going crazy. So the double whammy of insurance and property taxes is making Texas much less lucrative today than it was. I think North Carolina may be in a better place. Absolutely. 
No, that's that's the feedback. We've, and we've got a ton of property in Texas, and that's the feedback that we're getting as well. Um, but I, that is a good catalyst. I want to transition over to our radio round, which you have been through our radio round twice before, so we've yeah. altered it because I, I didn't want to ask you the same questions a third time. So I created a new list of questions that's actually a longer list because it's just things that I selfishly want to know while I have a really smart guy on the line. So I have, I have altered the radio round to five specific Neil Bawa Taylor questions. So the first question is, um, and, it's, and this one is an, uh, you know, a nod to our previous list, of we usually ask what's your favorite book, but I want to know what what, are you, what is your top one or two book recommendations for us as more of a current events thing? What, what are you reading today or what do you recommend I go read today? Um, what I find actually is today I want to be reading books that are written by people that have been investing for a long time. I find that in good times, you read books of people that are doing dot-coms and kind of racing companies forward and things like that. In, in bad times, you read books from leaders that have gone through three, four, or five of these. So if Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett has written a book, I want to read it. You know, I've been watching YouTube videos with, with their latest feedback. And it gives you a sense of like, you know, good times are transitory, bad times are transitory too. And they point out that you typically have 80% good times and 20% bad times. Um, so to me, this this is actually a good time to read books about people that have been through a number of these crashes, because I think that they have better insights than the sky is falling or, you know, there's gold everywhere sort of crowd. Absolutely. Love it. Um, what is the top three conferences you recommend? That, I know you go, you go all over the country every year and attend them. What do, what do you think are the, the top three that are going to provide the most value? Well, at the very top, unquestionably, is the best ever conference. I find yep. that it's the it's the it's the most structured. It's the one that provides the most value. I see the highest quality of syndication. You know, folks show up there. Lots of passive investors show up. So it's definitely you know has been and will continue to be my favorite conference in the in the yeah. U.S. So if I go to one, I'll go to the best ever conference. Um, Michael Blanc puts on a good conference, and it's usually in Dallas. And I I like that conference too because Michael has a lot of buddies. It. Right. I have a lot of, you know, he has a lot of buddies. I've, I've, be, I've presented at that conference a number of times. So just because of his network, he gets a, a very significant number of people at that conference. The third one is a non-syndication conference. I think it's very important to go to this conference because it's and it's the NMHC. So it's becoming more and more important to go to the National Multifamily Housing Council's conference. The NMHC holds a conference. I think it's not called NMHC. It's I think it's called like NAA, like a National Apartment Association conference. Um, so look at the NMHC website. It's a conference where you learn from people that have been doing this for much longer than we have because it's right. NMFHC? No, just NMHC. NMHC, National Multifamily Housing Council. So their annual conference is very powerful. It's also by far the largest. So there'll be like two times as many or three times as many people compared to the best ever conference. Sometimes syndicators that go there feel out of place. I urge you, you have to listen to these people. They've been doing it much longer than you have. They were doing it before the word syndication was even a word. And people that own for 20, 30, 40 years, they've seen cycles in a bad time. It's best to listen to what these people are saying. Awesome, great advice. And do you have a third one? Uh, well, I gave you Michael Blanc. So Michael Blanc, best ever. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Perfect. Perfect. 
Uh, couldn't agree with you more about best ever. Actually just signed up for Michael Blanc's right before uh, this call. Never been to one of his events before, but I, I wanted to get, I wanted to go to Dallas and I wanted to bring one of my teammates to the conference. So we signed up for that one. Love the uh, the feedback on the NMHC. Definitely going to go check that out. Um, the next question is multifamily news or just commercial real estate news. What's your favorite news source? Um, you, you're very, very in tune with the market and the and economics. Where are you getting all this from? Um, gosh, that one's really hard because there isn't a single source. My feedback is the lenders do a really good job, right? So Marcus and Millichap, Cushman and Wakefield, um, and um, uh, who's the other one? Um, uh, those two have great uh, CBRE. So the lenders have analytics teams because they provide analytics services to large syndicators and large you know, buyers. And so their analytics, which are really free, I mean, are absolutely astonishing. I read every single report. I've, I mentioned three, but there's probably 10 of those in, in that group that I you know, read all of their information. Yardi Matrix, which is uh, you know, a property management software, does an absolutely unbelievably phenomenal job. I attend every single one of their webinars and they also stand, you know, push data out. They send a monthly rent report which is my absolute favorite report of the month to read. Every single month, I consume that report. I read it twice. Gives me a sense of where the trends are going. It, it does more than just rents, but it's it's primarily a, a rent report that ta- you know slices and dices rents by large metros, small metros, things like that, Which what, what areas are going up, what areas are going down, stuff like that. So those are super, super interesting to me. And, and um I also like to read like mortgage daily news and stuff like that to understand what the mortgage world is doing, just independent yeah. of even multifamily. And I, I get a lot of information out of that. And then I, I tend to read a massive amount that is not related to real estate. Real estate today is just a you know booger on the shirt of uh, all the financial madness going on in the world. That's what we are. We're a booger on the shirt of the madness going on around the world. Everything that's happening with federal reserves, everything that's happening with you know rate cuts and with ridiculous amounts of sovereign debt, it's all impacting us in both positive and negative ways. So I think most syndicators don't have an understanding of this crazy, unbelievably stupid financial world out there. And, and you have to understand what that means for you. So Bloomberg, Market Watch are great sites to, to you know look at. Um, so I, I'll go to Bloomberg first thing in the morning and understand what those guys are doing. I don't, you know, really invest much in the stock market very rarely unless I see a weird opportunity. But I, I do read their articles because I think they're well written. Wall Street Journal as well. Awesome. That's a, a lot of great, great info. And then finally, what's your favorite market for for uh, the rest of the year? Um. This markets with distress. I mean, right now there's more distress and higher cap rates in markets like Phoenix and Atlanta. For the longest time, I've been investing in smaller markets because the cap rates were higher. So I've been buying in Greenville, South Carolina, or you know, buying in Killeen, Texas. Today is actually not a time to buy in tertiary markets because you're getting fairly good cap rates in some of the bigger markets. So I'm just paying attention to the cap rates. Uh, I think most markets are open because today I'm basically a buyer based on price, whereas in the past, I was a buyer based on population growth, job growth, income growth. 
today it just makes sense to focus on the price. Okay. And we had one more question. I thought that was the last one. It wasn't. The, the last one is, where do you find most of your investors? Um, Everywhere. I, I mean, I'm sure there'll be some investors that'll come out of this podcast. So I, I appear on 100 podcasts a year. I, I do about uh, 20 webinars a year. We spend half a million dollars a year on Facebook ads, um, um, go to conferences, things like that, mine the web. I have a team that mines Facebook groups um, and basically puts them into a database. Then we market webinars to them, stuff like that. So it's very difficult for me to answer that question. Uh, our YouTube channel is pretty terrific. So go to Multifamily University and you'll see fantastic amount of content. You'll notice that as soon as we post video, there are thousands of you know views on them, uh, even though some of the videos are more than an hour long. Um, so I think it's it's a multi-channel approach um, that that works. Um, Facebook ads are extremely expensive, so it's the top twenty percent of our funnel where we're like, okay, yeah. we know these are really expensive, but the really cheap stuff is going to make up for the really expensive stuff, and our average blended cost of you know uh, acquiring investors is going to be reasonable. Yeah. Cool. So where can our listeners find out more about you, get to know you, invest with you, learn from you? Um, two ways. Uh, one is type in my first name and last name into Google. I'm the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So everything good and bad that you read is about me. Um, the second, uh, more formal way is to go to Multifamily University, which is multifamily followed by the letter u.com. So that's multifamilyu.com. That's where we store 20 webinars a year. We have about 25,000 people that register for our webinars every year. And um, our webinars are about just everything that catches my fancy. Right now I'm writing one on the impact of artificial intelligence on everything in the world. And um, in, a, you know, in five months ago, I was talking about the impact of ESG and climate change on real estate. Uh, anything interesting that catches my fan, fan, fancy, we present on, of course, we present on things like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? What happened? Uh, what happened? What is happening with the interest rate cuts? So, uh, things that I think are in interesting to people, but are not necessarily just about multifamily real estate. Uh, that's the kind of community that we have. It's free. It's always meant to be free. There's no subscription. It's just a bunch of people getting together and talking about some interesting stuff. That's awesome, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us again. I appreciate. It. I learned a ton. I took a full page of notes, and I'm. I'm going to walk away and I'm going to subscribe to these uh, news stations and I'm going to sign up for this conference and uh, and I'm going to be a better investor because of it. So again, always appreciate you joining. Always appreciate the value you deliver and look forward to uh, keeping up with you and your journey and hopefully seeing you in another conference again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, darling. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.